This is a story of Black joy in the presentation of a music festival that occurred over six weeks in Harlem, USA, in a transitional period, 1969. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And you just heard from Amir Questlove Thompson about his film, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Questlove joined us just upon getting home from The Tonight Show. You can't see it on the pod, of course, but uh, room was illuminated, uh, as he said, not by lights, but by a artistic light installation that his girlfriend had set up. So it was a very dramatic setting. And his girlfriend actually plays a key role in this movie, believe it or not. He showed her a cut of the film and she gave him her honest feedback. And that led him to re-editing and coming up with the version that we all see today. It's such a great film. And hearing from him was almost as enjoyable as watching the film itself. You can see his storytelling ability in the film itself. And then when you hear him talk, he gives you a whole bunch more amazing stories. You'll ask him a question and he'll start at a completely different spot, but you know he's going to land the plane. You can feel it. You can feel it the whole way. And he keeps that narrative tension the whole way through. And then at the very end, he brings you back to where you were. So every question is a story. It's a journey. It's a real exploration of his artistic methods. It's an exploration of the beauty of the music. And it's an exploration of Black joy. And on the other side of Black erasure, interwoven in every response are all these themes all working together. And that's what you see in the film as well. And I love the way he speaks from the heart. He speaks about how things affect him personally and his own experiences. And then he makes the connections to a societal level. And that's something he also does in the film where the personal experiences of the performers is something we hear about, we learn about, and then we also hear about these other levels at a societal level. He was the perfect director for this material. Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, world premiered on the opening night of the 2021 Sundance Film Festival where it was awarded both the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award for Best U.S. Documentary. The film is one of the most acclaimed films of the last year, winning six Critics' Choice Awards, the National Board of Review Award for Best Documentary, Critics' Association Awards from cities across North America, and numerous audience awards. Films also nominated for a Film Independent Spirit Award, Cinema Eye Honors Awards, IDA Award, PGA Award, and a Grammy Award. And last but not least, the film is Oscar shortlisted for Best Documentary Feature. Summer of Soul is currently available for streaming on Hulu. The film's director, Amir Questlove Thompson, is an acclaimed drummer, DJ, producer, culinary entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, and member of The Roots, Philadelphia's most influential hip-hop group. He's a five-time Grammy Award winner who has served as musical director for everyone from D'Angelo to Eminem to Jay-Z. And in his spare time, he's the musical director for The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, where his beloved Roots crew serves as house band. Summer of Soul is his feature documentary debut. Coming up, Ken and I speak with Amir about his joyous film, Summer of Soul. Amir Questlove Thompson, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you very much. Hello, how are you? Great, and congratulations on the film. It is just absolutely amazing. I love it. Thank you. My pleasure. It's a labor of love. I'm glad you appreciate it. 
Amir, one of my twins is a drummer. Mm-hmm. And when we set up his first drum set, well, it's a Ludwig Questlove kit. And to set Great it up- choice. Great choice. And to set it up, we click on a link and there you are. And you very kindly and patiently walk us through the setup, provide mm-hmm. a few basic beats. So my son likes to say you were his first drum teacher. I'll take but, that. But my point really is that not only do you obviously love music, but you seem to have a real drive to share that love with others. And I think we can see that in the film. That's absolutely correct. I, I would actually like to maybe sort of expand that scope. Maybe around 2014, 2015, I would have agreed with you. But I now believe that I can expand it to creativity. Because in, in my mind, if you're creative, like even now, like the world is obsessed with Wordle. And that's the game of the moment. And, you know, that's pretty much going to be maybe social media's version of a, a crossword puzzle or that sort of thing. So, I mean, for me, I think creativity does something to the brain and to the spirit, no matter what it is, be it music, be it food, be it comedy, be it uh, writing books, be it building houses, whatever, art. I feel like creativity manages to exercise uh, the parts of the brain we don't think about. You know, there's five parts, the alpha, beta, theta, data. I'm missing one of them right now. But to me, that's what I'm more concerned with, providing in a form of entertainment, sort of providing uh, wheels to turn in people's brains. In the opening sequence of the film, you state that the festival, the Harlem Cultural Festival was filmed, Mm -hmm. but the footage sat in a basement for 50 years. For our audience, where was the footage all those years and how did it come to your attention? Okay, so there are two people responsible for the Harlem Cultural Festival. One gentleman who's the host of the festival, that's his brainchild. His name is Tony Lawrence. Tony Lawrence was sort of like an every Renaissance man, if you will. He's a nightclub act, a promoter, um, a musician, a singer, pretty much all things to all people. And he had a dream that he could pull off throwing a, a musical festival for the borough of Harlem for these people. And to really hammer it home, he wanted to show the world that this new idea called the music festival. I mean, by that point, music festivals were really just sort of, I mean, although very commonplace in Europe, as far as America is concerned, you kind of had like folk festivals and, you know, the occasional jazz festival. And I guess maybe uh, Bob Dylan going electric was probably the most newsworthy thing to happen at a festival up until that point. So um, he wanted to document this and hopefully turn it into a television series or turn it into uh, a movie. At the time they shot it for television and he enlisted the services of Hal Tolshin, who was a, a TV producer and very much skilled in this sort of kind of uh, area of documenting. And as a result, they shot over six weeks of footage, over 40 hours of footage are on tape. One problem though, there were no takers. You know, and the term black erasure is used in various forms in this film. But oftentimes when I talk about this in interviews, I think people tend to think of terms like that. They tend to think of the most 
extreme definitions of what that means. Like even when we use the term Black Lives Matter, it's really like Black Lives Matter with an ellipsis at the end, kind of meaning like also, not like that's the only lives that matter. And so in this particular case, when we're speaking of Black erasure, Black erasure just doesn't mean like, you know, bombing a church or assassinating a leader. Black erasure could also, you know, be in benign forms. And actually, I think some of the more dangerous versions of Black erasure is kind of just a casual scoff, like, yeah, all right, that was cool. You know, Stevie Wonder, and that's nice, you little gospel stuff, but, you know, it's, it's not important. It's not that important. It's, it's cool, but we'll pass on it. As evidenced by, like, the rejection letters that Hal Tolshin had, that was pretty much the order of the day. It was just like, it was cool, but not like, let me give you a platform and show this on television to America cool. Like, it was cool enough to make sure that property was protected in Harlem, which was really the reason why this got greenlit in the first place. Harlem was up in flames. America was up in flames, uh, with the exception of Boston, because James Brown successfully proved that, like, him being on television, PBS, for four hours, kept angry Bostoners who, you know, were, was angry about Martin Luther King's assassination, kept them indoors and entertained and not out there burning property. And I think that was basically the goal of what the festival was supposed to be like, just to give people a reason to not want to destroy the property because you're going to have fun all summer. Other than that, this was pretty much disposable. So this sat in the basement of Hal Tolshin until we picked it up for about 50, borderline 50, 50 years. There have been some close but no cigar moments in terms of Maybe we can do a 25th anniversary or a 30th anniversary, you know, that sort of thing. I'll say that even to the point where we successfully negotiated getting the film, Tolshin signs over the film and pretty much he dies like within 48 hours after he signs it over to us. But even then, for us to get the film as you know it now, it took a village. It took, you know, the average movie of this level shouldn't have like 10 people counting their piggy banks, cragging their piggy banks, like, okay, here's my 45 cents. What you got? Oh, I got $5. So even to put this out, it took a lot of people to invest money for something that otherwise should have just been like one or two people investing. So it, it, this was very hard to get out the gate. Your point about Black Erasure and how it's not necessarily just the quote unquote big events mm -hmm. that are important. I know you're working with Sam Pollard on an upcoming project, yeah. um, the League, about the Negro League. Mm -hmm. And I, I got my start in documentary working as an intern on Eyes on the Prize 2, which oh. Sam Pollard was one of the producers and he won wow. an Emmy. Yeah. But my point is that project, which covered this same period in the 60s, nobody dug into the archives like the Eyes on the Prize team. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, and you could ask Sam about this, nobody dug up anything about the Harlem Cultural Festival. And as no a result, <laughs> this historical series about the civil rights movement includes nothing about it. Here's the weird thing about it. Number one, I would like to think that I was approached because of my music pedigree, or at least my very public perception that the world thinks I'm this all-knowing czar of music. Um, I did not know that this existed myself. Matter of fact, very, very defensive in my sort of conversation, very skeptical that this even happened in the first place. Because, you know, when it finally got to me that, okay, after the Tonight Show, we're going to have a quickie meeting 
with these guys about that black Woodstock thing that happened. I'm like, wait, what? There was a black version of Woodstock? What are you talking about? Yeah, you know, Sly and Stevie and the Staple Singers and B.B. King. And I'm like, word? And Googled it, saw nothing on it, um, called a lot of older, you know, reputable New Yorkers I knew. I called journalists. I called civil rights people. Yo, what what you know about this uh, black Woodstock thing that happened? Uh, ah, I never heard of it. No one heard of it. And so instantly I'm like, wait, what's going on here? Like, I never heard of this. These people never heard of it. At that point, I was like, just trying to keep the meeting short and sweet because I was just like, well, you know, oftentimes I'll meet people that try to like outdo me in terms of like, uh, you know, I'm known for my collections. I have over like 200,000 records. People know I have crazy artifacts and I might put a house payment down on a Prince artifact or that sort of thing. I've just thought, okay, maybe these guys are just trying to stunt on me or something. And even when I did the, well, you know, we'll do lunch next week. We'll talk, you know, they came back the next week with the hard drive. And even then I'm still making excuses in my head. I'm like, well, the, the sound must suck or well, maybe the footage isn't that good. And even when I saw it, I was like, ah, videotape, ah, man. You know, I, I was creating every excuse because there had to be a reason why this wasn't allowed. I thought like, well, maybe publishing, maybe what they do, like all Beatles covers. Like for me, I just couldn't for the life of me figure out why we never knew about it. And why am I the person that now has to tell the story? And it's just that no one knew about it, which is dangerous. I mean, the fact that I was willing to say, well, it's not on Google, so it never happened. That's scary, you know? And of course, it's in direct contrast to Woodstock. Same summer, and everybody knows Woodstock. Ten days before. You mentioned Eyes on the Prize, too, which to me was very chilling to watch the interview of the um, gentleman who's involved in the uh, story that just last year. the uh, Just in the Black Messiah? Yes, exactly. To watch that interview and to know that he committed suicide right after that interview. Very chilling. You know, the thing is, it's, it's also with a lot of civil rights period films, I realized in doing this, you know, we know about the struggle. We know about the bloodshed. We know about the fire hoses and the animals. We know about the billy clubs. We know about, we know about death. We know about pain with Black people. Like a lot of people's relationship with who we were as people, especially in the civil rights period, was literally a dark thing. Like as far as our pain and our struggle. And I'm realizing how key the area of black joy could have been used as a way to humanize us you know you have to see us in our joy you have to see us laughing you have to see us really celebrating looking colorful looking beautiful looking regal that to me was the most important part of why it was crucial that this film comes out because you have to see all sides of our emotion not just the tears and the anger you have to see the laughter and the joy too that's when I realized how important black joy is to our story because it wasn't all just doom and gloom I'll, I'll give you a quick example shooting 
Jesse Jackson's interview when we're talking about Ben Branch, who in this particular story, saxophonist Ben Branch is the last human to talk to Dr. Martin Luther King mere seconds before he was assassinated. And the second that Jesse sits in the chair when he's doing this interview with us, you know, he was letting us know, like he instantly went to the story of Martin Luther King's last five minutes on earth. And the most beautiful revelation of that whole thing was that he wanted us to know that we tend to go with the narrative of how, you know, Martin Luther King had this premonition or this omen that he wasn't going to get there with us, sort of like this Moses thing, like the mountaintop speech, his last speech was like, I might not get there with you. You know, we tend to think of it like the, that moment in Malcolm X with Spike Lee, where you hear like a change is going to come where you're like, okay, we know this is the end of his life. And Jesse was like, no, like we were having the most craziest pillow fight ever. And I was like, huh? He was like, yeah, man, we were joking. We were talking about each other's moms. We were, you know, like Jesse didn't want to wear a tie to dinner. He was basically telling like, yo, man, do we got to wear a suit just to eat some food? Like, can we just wear our regular clothes and eat at this church? You know, like and Andrew Young and... They're all Ralph Abernathy, like they're having a pillow fight. And of course, when Benjamin Branch arrives, Martin Luther King comes out like, yo, by the way, when you play Precious Lord last night, so amazing. I want you to play that. And that's how he passed away. And Jesse was like, it's really important that we stress that even in, in the darkest hour of America, of the civil rights period, that Martin Luther King was so happy and full of joy in those last seconds. That to me was one, it was an eye opener and a revelation, but yeah, black joy is an important component that needed to be exposed and held up in the same light as we think of what Woodstock was. Because when you compare what the movie Woodstock was compared to what really happened at Woodstock, like when we think of Woodstock, we think of like summer of love, hippies, and Hendrix does the Star Spangled Banner, fun time had by all, three days of food and fun. And really, you know, if one thing that happened at Woodstock happened at the Harlem Cultural Festival, then chances are this could easily be seen as Ultima. Like, you remember that festival when all those people shot up heroin and started having orgies in the middle of the grass? Like, that's what it would have been. But I still feel as though this is potent and as strong as 50 years ago. And the timing couldn't have been better. I, I wish it was out early because it could have inspired a whole generation of people like myself. But, you know, luckily I got here to this place of creativity without having to see the Black Woodstock movie. Talk about joy. Does anyone embody it better than Stevie Wonder? I mean, just, and, you know, I think you teach us something about Stevie, just like you teach us about the festival. I think yeah. a lot of people think of Stevie, they think of the singing, which you show, they think mm -hmm. of the keyboard playing and which you show later, boy, does he address that keyboard. And what they don't know is he played a lot of things and played them extremely well. And you show him drumming. I think people don't know what a world-class drummer he was. Can you talk about his influence and his style? So here, here's the weird thing about that moment. I will say that time is the most important component. I feel like time is the star of the Summer of Soul. Because everything about what makes this special is time. The fact that 1969 was a sort of like a, a transition year, 
a paradigm shift, if you will. The fact that it took 50 years for the film to get made. The fact that in 2017, my mind is thinking, let me just put 17 songs together, paste them and blammo, there's your movie. And then here comes March 16th, 2020, which specifically on that day was gonna lead us to a whole nother narrative of this movie that gets washed away because of the pandemic. And then let's really turn up the heat around April when suddenly we're dealing with George Floyd, we're dealing with Breonna Taylor, and suddenly life is imitating art and you can't tell the difference between what's on the news and what we're editing. And the weird thing is that, so I'm on the farm. Uh, my girlfriend and I are now quarantining on a farm with a family, friends of ours. And, you know, kind of daily or every other day, I'm showing them clips and edits that we're making over this new device called Zoom and that sort of thing. Just basically testing out the movie and the patriarch of, of the family, my friend David Zander, at the end was sort of like, all right, this is cool. And mind you, this is my first draft, which is more like three hours and 20 minutes, extra 90 minutes in the film. And he says, you know, it's cool, but like, what's your trademark? Like, I know a Spike Lee film when I see it. You know, I know a Scorsese film when I see it. Like, what tells me that this is not just another Ken Burns slow zoom of the photo thing? What tells me that this isn't Ken Burns? Like, what makes this your thing? And he was really insisting that I insert myself in the film. And the thing was, I was really very sensitive to being the cliche go-to person. Because, you know, if you look at my credits and documentaries, like it's almost like mandatory that you get Questlove to talk about this person and that person. And I didn't want to insert myself in this film. So racking my brain out, I was just like, I don't know, what, what is my trademark? And I just let it roll off my back. I, didn't, I was like, all right, well, I'm, uh, I don't know. And then I saw that drum solo and thought, wait a minute, no one's ever seen Stevie in this light before. And it's kind of amazing. What, I, what, what a way to make a debut. If I were to make a cold open and an entry into the film world, like what's my Trojan horse bussing through the, and I was like, okay, I'm a drummer and people know that. So this is going to be my wink to the audience as you know, this is my film now, because this is what I'm starting with. Actually, the drum solo was probably the most common solo of this festival, which is kind of weird to me, because when you think of solos, you think of a guitarist or a, a saxophone player. Drum solos, I believe that there were nine altogether. And at one point, I was thinking like drums of death, like Alatunji and Ray Barreto and Mongo Santa Maria and the, the Chambers Brothers drummer and Greg Rico from Sly and the Family Stone, Max Roach, all these drummers. I just wanted to uh, just go all over the place. Um, it, it was a little too ambitious. And we realized that there was enough excitement in Stevie Wonder's drum solo, which really just like, you know, and I say this in the most loving, loving way, like he just looked like an excited Muppet drumming. Like it, it almost felt like it was Animal from the Muppet Show. And it just, to me, that was like a hell of a cold open and a way to enter this new form of creativity. So that's kind of how we came to that point.
You know, I think another signature move on your part is just the way you put the performances together overall. They're very long, but in a great way. The feeling that I get is that we're getting something close to a complete concert going experience with these performances. However, what you're doing is the songs are very long, but you're intercutting them with archival footage often or interview bites. But the song is the glue that holds it together. And mm -hmm. it almost always is the climax of the scene. Can you describe how you worked with the songs? Yeah, you know, 2017, 2018, again, I'm just like, okay, let me... Let me put my own festival together, which would have been easier had there been a, a more cohesive look, you know, because it's raining on Stevie on Motown Day. It's raining on the gospel day. It's way too much sun during Fifth Dimension and Pop Day. There's a really hilarious moment. I even wanted to capture when things didn't go right at the Harlem Cultural Festival. There's a singer, Blinky. Blinky was a, a Motown artist. If you're familiar with the television show, Good Times, she's one of the singers of the themes to the sitcom Good Times with Jim Gilstrap. So there's a moment where Blinky is singing Light My Fire by the Doors. And at one point, the wind blows some of the, the music sheets off the stands. And thus the band is just lost going in circles. To me, it was a beautiful disaster, but if I were in like Peter Jackson get back mode, then I would have included all those things. But initially, I was trying to figure out, can I make this a cohesive festival where I just put the 17 songs together as a mixtape and that's it. But, um, you know, number one, I had way too many questions than I had answers. You know, we had the film but really no context whatsoever. So thus the conversation of, well, should we put feelers out there to see who's willing to talk about it or who even knows about it? But then it was like, ah, man, like these were teenagers in 69. So that means, no, 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 God, they're 70 years old now. So I know they're not on social media like that. Like, how am I going to reach these people? So I was just like, all right, let me throw a Hail Mary pass and see what happens. And, you know, I kind of address their grandkids. Like, do you have a crazy uncle? that swears to God that he saw Sly and Stevie back in the 60s that he won't shut up about or whatever. And sure enough, it was like, yo, this is all my dad keeps going on about, the best thing he ever been to. He won't stop talking about that. Suddenly, all the nieces and nephews and the guy kids and whatever are responding. So now we have people that are willing to share insight of what it was like then on top of that, Hal Tolson's widow hands over like a bunch of boxes in the basement, which could have easily been discarded, you know, because again, he passes away and she's moving to Florida and sort of like, well, there's stuff here. So I don't know if this means anything to you guys, but we'll send some boxes over and see what's up. And sure enough, like all the answers are in the boxes. Like you see all the contracts, you see all the information I didn't know. I didn't know that Mahalia Jackson, like she was worth $10,000 back in 69. I, I didn't know that you can get Sly and the Family Stone for just $2,500, you know? So there's a lot of information we're finding out. I told Joseph Mattel, my producer, I was like, yo, we need a really special editor because Joseph suggested to me that we should do this like it was a DJ set. And when I do a DJ set, I sit with these records a long time to try to figure out 
What's my feng shui order? What's my flow? The other process is I work backwards. I always start with the end and work my way to the beginning. And so in telling that story, I realized that the editor has to have a musical element. And Josh Pearson is that editor. Normally in the films that he does, he's not allowed to, quote, have that much fun in the editing as he did with this. But Josh and I are of the same age range. You know, we kind of said or imagined having been teenagers at the time when Public Enemy was making music. For those that aren't familiar, Public Enemy's form of music, their producer, Hank Shockley, says, we wanted to be music's worst nightmare. And they are what you imagine when your parents are like putting their hands over their ears because it's just noise. Like it's almost like free jazz plus bad brains and the sex pistols. They would take a David Bowie sample and mix it with a James Brown sample and mix it with a Run DMC sample. Each song would have like somewhere between 10 to 15 samples for the musical bed and not to mention all the sound bites. Josh was very familiar with that and was like, okay, well, this is our chance to be public enemy. That was pretty much, to me, it was sort of normal, but I I guess I didn't realize how radical this form of filmmaking was. I'm just used to fast edits and chaos everywhere and totally paying attention. So I, I didn't realize that we were breaking rules. But again, I think that's why I was chosen because I think any other quote unquote documentarian that had films under their belt would have followed the rules of what filmmaking was supposed to be. And I didn't have those. I wasn't equipped with that. So that's went with my heart. My mom didn't like my Led Zeppelin, but she liked Public Enemy. So good for her. (laughs) Uh, The first artists we see today watching the film and talking about it are Billy Davis Jr. and Marilyn McCoo from The Fifth Mm -hmm. Dimension. Yes, it's a really moving experience. They're watching this film and they had been, you know, criticized by many for not sounding black enough. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn says, we wanted our people to know what we were about and we were hoping they would receive us. Can you tell us how important this was to them then and now? So here's the crazy thing. I think what really makes this movie work is the emotional compelling. Like I didn't come in the gate saying, you know what, I'm going to have moments that I'm gonna make you cry and really reach your heart. But it's so weird because like, I wanted the, the performances to, to stir you, but I, I did not come in the gate thinking that my emotional high point was gonna come from the fifth dimension because they were so happy, so jovial. But you know, again, as a first time director, I kind of, I won't say I stumbled into it, but I will say that I casually thought Maybe we were changing cards during the interview. And again, I didn't want to insert myself. You don't hear my voice asking questions during this whole process. So we're changing a card, but I didn't realize the other cameras running at the same time. And I just casually said to them, I was like, you know what? Having been familiar with you guys as a child and watching your variety show in the 70s, and I've known every sort of incarnation of the fifth dimension and Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo as solo acts as a duo or whatever. And I was like, I did not know that you guys knew how to dance. I said, it's so weird. I didn't know you know how to dance. I was like, and Billy Davis, I didn't know that you had a, a gospel growl to you. Like, I've never heard you say like, good God and ha, 
that? And, you know, like you would have been like James Brown in one second had you done like one more song. I think that struck a nerve with them in ways that otherwise they wouldn't have addressed that in any other interview they've ever done because, you know, they were taught to be professional. They were taught to not rock the boat, if you will. And she'd said like, you know, one is because we were so relieved and happy that these people liked us and were receiving us. And instantly as an artist, I, I recognize what Merlin McCoo was saying and I relate it to it because as a fellow artist and as a person that works in the professional space, I know what code switching is. Code switching for Black people is the thing where, you know, this is why Motown artists had to go to charm school. You know, this is why the Supremes had to learn to cross their legs. This is how, you know, they were taught how to hold their teeth. This is why David Ruffin in August weather is wearing a wool tuxedo and a coat because he's been taught from the gate. Your comfort doesn't matter. Like your professionalism is first and you must be non-threatening. Like your comfort doesn't matter. Wear that wool coat in August. That's what he's thinking, which on the other side of that coin, makes the arrival of Sly and the Family Stone a very scary thing for this audience. There's a moment, you know, again, like this is a three hour and 20 minute film initially. And Greg Arrico is like, yo, like the kids are losing their mind. First of all, Sly wasn't even announced. So it's not like the audience really truly knew that they were coming. Some people heard through the grapevine, Sly and the Family Stone might come. But, you know, at that point, they were just a niche, a cult group. 10 days later after Woodstock, there'll be a household word, but not at this point. And so when they come out on stage, oh my God, every adult, anyone over 25 is frowning like, wait, what? Every kid is losing their mind though. So it's almost like I compare it to if me, a, a true blue hip hop head, if I'm at a Wu-Tang reunion concert and you're telling me the last minute, hey, by the way, guys, Migos is coming out to do an opening act. Then, yeah, then my kids or my God kids are like losing their minds and all the 40-year-olds are like, wait, what's going on here? And that's what happened. Like an audience of that caliber has never seen a group of Black people just wear jeans on stage. That was radical. Like, wait, what job you had that lets you wear jeans? Even when I was a teenager, like girls would look at my hair and be like, wait, what do you do for a living? Because how do you have a job with all that crazy hair you have? Like, you can't get a good job with that hair. We were trained to be professional before we were trained to be comfortable. So it really struck a nerve in Marilyn McCoo, which I'm glad she was able to be that vulnerable and open with us. And that's a moment you can't, you can't dismiss. Same for Musa Jackson as well, who also was emotional. Musa Jackson's the gentleman who opens the festival, opens the movie and ends the movie. And even with his tears, like, I, I didn't plan on having Barbara Walter moments for these interviews. Tony Lawrence, I think, tracks that change in clothing. He starts out with a nice kind of yellow suit with a pink shirt and a pink tie. Oh, man. And so his clothes changes. get, yeah. like, by the end, it's almost like it almost got like a flamenco shirt. I don't know. It's like a ruffles or. Yeah, he, he had a wardrobe change almost for every other act he introduced. Every two acts, 
he introduced, then there was like a new wardrobe change. So this guy was a natural born star. For me, that, that's one of the main regrets. Like a lot of information is coming out long after the movie. Like now Tony Lawrence has a Wikipedia entry that gives all this information up that we didn't have before, but he was one of the most elusive figures of this whole festival. Like I would have loved to dug in on just his method. So finding his assistance was a blessing, but he was such a character. I almost feel like that mystery and that sort of flamboyant showmanship that he had, that's what made him, and that's what made this festival be, because I, I joke that this is probably a good version of the movie Uncut Gems, you know, that whole, you gotta rob Peter to pay Paul and hustle and tell Gladys Knight that Stevie said yeah, and tell Stevie, Gladys Knight said, yeah, and sort of con people into doing this festival because there's really no logical reason for something unprecedented of this magnitude to go down on this local level. Like it literally took a village to make this happen. He's definitely smiling down on you from somewhere. Yes, I feel that because the magic that's been happening since this film has happened is astounding to me. The film is obviously it's part musical record, but it's also part historical record, and it takes place in a particular time, 1969, which is a mm -hmm. crucial year in American history, a crucial year for people in Harlem, people in this audience, people on the stage. Talk about the importance of bringing in the events leading up to and including 1969 and presenting that historical context and showing how it affected the performances. It really wasn't until this particular run of kind of promotion for the movie that I realized, in hindsight, the fact that we were under stress and under a lot of duress, the duress and stress that we were under in creating the film. It's so meta because we're basically talking about a story of artists under stress and duress about the civil rights period. I mean, you got to understand that now we live in a time where sadly we might be used to any moment a school shooting happened. Like if you remember back for 9-11, how devastating that was for the world and how we really took that to heart and how, you know, the last four years, it's almost been almost 9-11, like once a month, you know what I mean? And so for this time period, you're talking about the beginning of the civil rights period and how under Martin Luther King's leadership and also under Malcolm X's leadership and other civil rights figures as well, the sort of modus operandi in order of the day is uh, peaceful protesting, marching, and kind of a, a very gentle means of acquiring human rights. Whereas something happens in the latter half of the civil rights period, particularly after Malcolm X's assassination, especially after Bobby Kennedy's assassination in 68, and then Martin Luther King's assassination in 68 as well, with a younger generation, there's just a new form of expression and it's more impatient and it's not freedom now, it's freedom right now. There's clearly a, a generation gap happening between younger people in the struggle and older people in the struggle. It's happening and, and it's occurring 
and it's seeping out in different ways, not only in forms of protesting, but it's also seeping out in our creativity and as far as the music we're listening to. Now psychedelic rock is mixing in with black music. Now we're dealing with Vietnam issues. Now we're dealing with, you know, sort of who's next? Everyone that steps up to the plate to lead us is getting gunned down and assassinated. So I don't know. 1969 is such a transformative year, like in terms of what we call ourselves, embracing of our African heritage. It's so weird that, yes, now there's pride in being African. But I remember a time period where if you're playing, you call it a ranking or signifying, you know, your school friends, like, well, your mom's so fat when she gets on the scale, it says to be continued, you know, that sort of thing. One of the most hurtful things that you could call somebody on schoolyard taunting was African. You African, you know, you dirty African, that sort of thing. And we were ashamed of that. Suddenly and now in 1969, we're learning that Black is beautiful. You know, we have to say Black because we don't know where in Africa we come from. Even for myself, the year that this film got sent to me, I was one of the lucky 1% of people in the United States that could identify his slave ship, who could identify where from Africa he came from, Benin, hello, knew who his ancestors were. Like there's only 1% of African-Americans in the States that can say that. And I'm one of the lucky few, only because my ancestors came on the very last slave ship. So it was illegal then. These things are documented, but it was such a transformative period, but also creatively. And, you know, as a result, Stevie Wonder's thinking about his future as far as music he's writing. Also, you know, staple singers are sort of inching away from, they would sometimes be like one of two lone black acts in folk festivals. So now they're getting less away from gospel and more into protest music, more into pop music. Glass Night and the Pips will leave Motown and see bigger success. Motown itself is going through a transformative period where now a lot of those suit and tie groups of the civil rights early era, the Negro era, now have to come in the form of psychedelica. So now the Temptations, who used to be of the ilk of prim and proper, will soon start dressing like Sly and the Family Stone in about a month or so after this festival. This festival not only shows you where we were, but it also shows you the future. It's a rare look at a bunch of change about to happen in real time. Absolutely. And when Nina Simone is on stage, yeah, you feel like she totally senses the moment and that she is going to engage in a real conversation with the audience. Just the choice of her material and really kind of the pleading she does with the audience mm-hmm. is extraordinary. Can you talk about Nina Simone in the film? Okay, so here's the cool thing about Nina Simone. She, too, is sort of at her wit's end with Again, being creative in the age of stress, which is hard to do. She is not even inching away. She's running at top speed away from the supper club show tunes of the day. You know, she do like Porgy and Bess, and there's a boat that's leaving soon from New York, and, you know, all these love songs. Now she realizes how important it is to use her voice. And, you know, it's a dangerous time to do so, especially for Black artists. 
at the beginning of the 60s, you know, Ray Charles was like the NWA of his day. Like the black church was so angry at Ray Charles for, you know, singing love songs over gospel music as evidenced by the Edwin Hawkins singer singing like how they got excommunicated from the church for creating a happy day and it really hitting home with secular people, non-Christians. In the case of Nina Simone, here's an interesting thing. So in that original three-hour version of the film, the three-hour and 25-minute version cut that I did, my first cut, Nina Simone comes in kind of shy of the first hour, like right in the middle. I'll say where Mavis Staples and Mahalia Jackson was. And Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples was at my end. That was my grand finale. Same performances. And again, we're doing this in the age of COVID and quarantining. So we're learning how to communicate on Zoom. We're not seeing each other. A majority of this film and cuts and decisions I made were courtesy of my iPhone. Normally when you do a film, you do about 10 to 15 focus groups. You know, you want to test to make sure that the material is cool uh, amongst an audience and look at the scores. We really didn't have the luxury of that. Like we did like maybe two, barely three of these things. So there's a moment where, you know, we're sort of assessing everyone's notes and trying to ponder like who we should listen to and who should we stick our guns with as far as like our gut instinct. And there's a moment where I'm at the farm lying in bed and I wake my girlfriend up and I'm like, babe, I was like, what do you like? What do you really think? Because the thing is that I come from hip hop. And when you come from hip hop and you're playing your new material for your peers, like, you know, in 1998, when I'm mastering the Things Fall Apart record for The Roots and I'm playing it for my peers, they're like losing their minds. Like, yo, this is crazy. And, you know, I was wondering like, wow, okay, well maybe with movie people, they're just more subdued. And they're like, hey, this is a great film and this is nice. And I was asking her, I was like, well, everyone gave me the pat on the back. Like, this is nice, but like, what do you think? Give me your gut. Don't mince words. Like, let me know what's up. And she said, well, look, to be honest with you, it, it was beautiful. I enjoyed it. A little bit long, but I don't know. It's like you made this whole thing about like what your last 15 to 20 minutes was going to be. And the thing is, is that when this movie comes out, you want to really be aware of when it comes out because how we're living now, and and again, what we were living now at that point in this is around April or May, this is when protests are all over the streets. You know what I mean? Like we're turning the volume down. You, know, you hear those gunshots? You're hearing sirens, and literally every day, it's it was like you know what it was to be around and alive in the middle of a pandemic and a protest in 2020. And she was just saying to me, like, it's cool, but I don't know. I, I feel like the Nina Simone section is really what's happening right now in our lives as we're living it. And the Mavis Mahalia thing is sort of like, that would be your Hollywood kumbaya moment. Like, if this is before the pandemic, is this before 2018? Then, yeah, you would have made the safe choice. But the thing is, you don't want to make the safe choice. You want to make the right choice. And then when I brought this up to the guys at Radical and to Josh and to Joseph and the producers, they agreed too. like, 
Nina Simone was more fiery and it leaves you with a different feeling and it feels more like where we are right now. So again, timing was everything because again, if I accepted this earlier in 2017 and got done by 2019 for the 50th anniversary, I, you know, probably left it with Mavis Staples having the last word, but everything changed after April of 2020 and Nina Simone's voice and more frankly, the voice of women, you don't hear much about women's thoughts of the civil rights period when you see these documentaries. So even having Charlene Hunter Galt and having Denise Olivers and all these women speak on the movement was important for us as well, because you, you just don't hear those things when you see civil rights pieces. He maybe gets a little bit lost in the shuffle here because he's not one of the performers, but the writer and scholar Greg Tate, I think, just says some amazing things. He's so poetical, so brilliant in his observations. And he unfortunately just passed away last Mm -hmm. month. And I know when he did, you wrote on your Facebook page, Greg was my first and in some ways truest North Star, Mm -hmm. which was quite a tribute, I thought. Can you talk? about what it was like for you to share this footage with Greg. So here's the thing. I've written six books and leading back to the public enemy analogy thing with how we cut this film. You know, in the summer of 1988, when I'm 17, public enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back record was such a jaw dropping, life changing moment for me. You know, I'm walking to my short order cook job at University of Penn. And I pick up this record at a record store and I'm listening on my way to work and my walk is different. And this album is so heavy for me that in my lunch break, I said to myself, this is what I want to do for a living. Like I, I went on my lunch break and I never went back to work. I went to the park and just listened to that record like maybe seven times in a row, jaw dropped. What winds up happening is, you know, and I want to tell my dad I quit my job. So I'm like going to work every day in that outfit, but I'm just sitting in the park listening to this thing. A week later, I get my hands on the Village Voice and I read Great Tate's review of It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And if I'm really thinking about it, yes, that album brought me to this place where I'm here with you right now. But if I really want to be 100 about it and be honest with you, reading Greg Takes review of that album is what really brought me here. Because by that point, I was a music journalist nerd. My dad was a musician, so we had every cash box, every billboard, every Rolling Stone. So I memorized every record review. I remember it being a big deal that Prince got four and a half stars for Dirty Mind in 1981. I would post these record reviews on my wall. You know, like that's how obsessive I was. Like, okay, I want to make records. I wanted to create not only an album or have art like Public Enemy, but I wanted someone so beautifully eloquent and colorful as Greg Tate was. By that point, my Black journalist hero was Cynthia Horner of Ride On Magazine, like the Black team beat, you know? So I can only get like, you know, Michael Jackson might be shooting a Pepsi commercial next week. Stay tuned. 
Like that's the level of journalism I had for the music I loved. And to read really critical, amazing words, not only did I want to create music like Public Enemy, and not only did I want someone to write about my art like Greg Tate, but then the third tier was like, yo, I want to be Greg Tate. I want to be the eloquent poet. I want to make people feel like Greg Tate made me feel about reading about music, you know? And so here's the weird thing about it. So when I get this project, and I told you from the gate, I was very cynical about it, very doubtful about it. And it took me three months to really accept that this is my destiny. You know, again, my girlfriend in credit, she's like, yo, get over yourself. This is history. And this is your chance to correct history. You know, you're about history. You get upset if pop-up video gives a wrong factoid on VH1. So this is your chance to correct history. And that's how I took it. I took it as, all right, I'm correcting history. And even though when I get to bat, I must do a grand slam or else, you know, that that's the, the fire I had. Like I had a mission. And the thing is, is that I, I was a little sheepish and trying to get so-called heavy hitters to do this thing, you know, because I'm like, okay, what do I tell? Like, hey, A-list person, I'm, I'm doing this movie. Do you think you could give commentary or whatever? And I was so afraid to ask Greg Tate to do this for me because, like, I was in my smallness. I really had a lot of self-doubt in the very beginning. And I just thought, like, oh, he's not going to take me serious. And, you know, there's a few people I called that didn't return my phone call. They're busy and I get it. But he accepted. And it was so important for me because the thing is, is that with Sonny Chirac and especially with the gospel section, I needed someone to really drive home how, you know, we're just starting to talk about mental health for Black people now. But we weren't having that 50 years ago. And I needed someone to explain that it's not funny to see gospel people lose the spirit and start talking in tongues and feigning. And, you know, when you're watching Sonny Chirac do this really weird atonal solo, how that's his pain. Sonny Chirac could have easily been a school shooter. That's how angry and that's how sadness is with us. And this is what free jazz is for. This is why Yoko Ono's music exists. This is why Sonny Rollins exists. So I needed someone that really knew the language of pain in terms of the African experience to really hammer that in. And he did it awesomely. And here's the beautiful thing about it. So let's cut to three years. And Greg Tate is at the first showing. This is the first time I'm watching the film with an audience, you know, in an outdoor setting. We're in Mount Morris Park watching this thing. And okay, so the movie's over and he's walking home. We're about to have a Mean Joe Green commercial moment between us. And I walk up to him and I'm like, hey, man, I didn't want to make him uncomfortable because, you know, again, I, I could fan out with the best of him. I don't want to alienate people, weird them out. And I was just like, look, man, I, thanks for coming. And uh, all right, I'll see you later. And I stopped and I ran back. I said, well, actually, no, thank you for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And I walked away. And then I was like, oh, I got a triple dip. And I ran back and something told me, and I'm so glad this is our last conversation because I didn't know what was about to happen. I was just like, look, man, you know, I didn't tell him the, the public enemy story. 
I wanted so bad to let him know, like, dude, when you wrote that review, this 16 year old kid took that to heart and decided that he wanted to be a musician and an educator just like you. So I, I just wrapped it up succinctly, unlike this very long answer I'm giving you. And I told him, like, thank you. This is a result of all your record reviews in the Village Voice. This is a result of all the books that you've written. Like, I read all those things and took it to heart and decided I wanted to do the same things that you did. Like, thank you for this. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And again, it was like the Mean Joe Green commercial, the Coke commercial with the kid. And he was just like, that was the most beautiful love letter I've ever seen to black art and you touched me with it. And what's even more crazier is that his daughter shares with me a couple weeks back, like she's going through his old notes and everything. He just wrote like how amazing, like he was going to write and write how amazing it was to see Summer of Souls. So for me, that, that was worth it all. Like Greg Tate was truly Next up, my mom and my dad, really, truly instrumental in my artistic expression. Well, I'm sure there's some 16-year-old kid out there who's just seen Summer of Soul and has had a similar experience. So I hope so. <laughs> congratulations on the film. It's just a tremendous achievement. Thank you. And thank you so much for spending the time today. It was just a pure joy talking to you. Thank you. You too, Michael. Thank you. And all right. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>